You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. All right, well, good morning, Midtown. Glad that you guys joined us this morning and braved, like Krista said, through the marathon traffic. I know we have a few of our own that are actually running the marathon, or at least the half marathon, so quietly pray for them as they're probably finishing or struggling right now. I really do appreciate you being here. If you are new, my name is Justin Christopher. I serve as the associate pastor here. would really enjoy the chance to meet you if you are visiting with us, so come say hi afterward. I'd appreciate that. Uh, Before we jump into continuing our series in Jonah, though, I did want to uh, remind you all that we are actually in day number eight of a 21-day fast. Many of us actually... As a part of this church, are fasting from various foods or entertainment or media or devices during these uh, 21 days, and I hope that you've been experiencing a great time. We've actually created a 21-day prayer guide that is actually written by 21 of us, which is pretty neat. I've been enjoying waking up every morning and like, like reading a prayer, knowing that all of us are kind of praying along the same lines. And so even if you missed last week or you didn't pick one of these up, would encourage you just to jump right in and start with day number eight today. I do have one uh, minor confession to make, though. I was kind of in charge of putting this thing together, and there are, there are a few typos, but probably the worst mistake that was made was that um, it appears that Jake Box, our lead pastor, uh, wrote two of the entries. Now, now, Jake is special, but he's not that special. Like, he doesn't get to write two entries, but my heart kind of sunk because I was like, oh, no, I, I credited uh, Jake's to someone else's. I hope that they're not mad. I wonder who it is, and thankfully, when we flipped through it, I realized it was the very, very forgiving and gracious Summer Seibert. And so I was like, I'm I'm glad that she'll forgive me for sure, which she did greatly, although she did say she was a little worried that maybe there was going to be some heresy in what she wrote, and it would be attributed to Jake. And I read it, and I was like, no, no, yours is way better than Jake's. So this is, this is fantastic. So every, everything's good. So when when you get to day 20, know that it's Summer's and not Jake's fine work, all right? So I apologize. Thanks for forgiving me, Summer. Um, it really has been fun, though, to wake up and pray, and so I hope that you guys, no matter where you're at in your fast, I just want to encourage you to, to carry on, like maybe you've, you've kind of struggled or stumbled or maybe decided you need to readjust and fast in a different way, like that's okay. I would encourage you here in these last two weeks just to continue to seek God and persevere, and I want to remind us that we need each other, and so you guys and your families or among your roommates, this is stuff you need to be talking about, encouraging each other, processing together, uh, particularly in your midtown communities like we just heard about in your huddles. Like, let's be processing and seeking God together and encouraging each other to stay firm in this fast. Also want to note, uh, we forgot to put it out last week, but we've got it here. Uh, You see below me, Micah 6. As part of this fast, one of the things that we're doing is we're contributing to Micah 6, which is a food pantry. So we're going to be collecting canned foods, and so you can bring those the next several Sundays. And then after Sunday the 1st, we're actually going to deliver them. So part of our fast is also to be considering and thinking about the the poor while we're maybe fasting from some food, remembering those who who are fasting, but not by choice. And so we hope that uh, you would continue to serve and and worship that way with us on Sunday mornings. Feel free to bring some more canned goods to us as well. Sound good? So we're going to continue in Jonah. And I think uh, I've heard a lot from many conversations with uh, folks that I've known in my, my Midtown community. People have really been enjoying this Jonah series uh, because it's, it, it's so good at like this kind of strange story has so much to say, one about the miraculous things that God can do, right? Like we've got some pretty wild stuff of a, a crazy storm that God brews up. We've got a guy getting swallowed by a fish. <laughs> we've got a lot of just miraculous things. There's going to be another miraculous thing that happens in the next chapter. But maybe more importantly, we learn so much about the human, humankind, 
human nature in this passage, where you've got just a rebellious Jonah, you're going to see today, a a rebellious people in Nineveh, and you just learn about the, the heart of humanity that we can all relate to. But probably most importantly, and kind of why we've named it what we've named, the, the God who's pursuing us, the most important thing you can learn from Jonah is you get a really clear picture of God's heart toward his people, that he keeps running after the people who are running away from him. And so I think we're going to see a little bit more of that in the story uh, that we look at today. If you, don't, if you haven't been following along or weren't here, aren't familiar with the story, I'll just give a super, super quick recap. So in chapter 1, uh, God comes to Jonah and tells him that he wants him to go to Nineveh, this, this big city. And, and preach, but Jonah says, no, I'm not going to do it. So he flees completely the other direction, boards a ship to try to get out of there. And that's when the storm comes upon it. And they end up saying and noticing that it was Jonah's fault. And so the sailors throw Jonah overboard where he's then swallowed by a fish. And, and in chapter two, scene two, it's Jonah in the fish. And so Jonah's kind of stewing and not really ready to acknowledge God in this, but ultimately comes to his senses and realizes that God has saved him. He's not given him what he deserved. And not only that, he's given him more than he deserves. And so the fish then spits Jonah out, and that's where we pick up in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we're going to get to see Jonah gets a second chance, a second calling. Do you all like second chances? I'm pretty fond of second chances, third, fourth, (laughs) fifth chances. Uh, I used to call them as a kid do-overs. You ever do that when you're a kid? Like you're, you know, playing like a game or a sport or throwing the football. Like, well, that one doesn't count. You know, as adults, we'd call it like a mulligan, but back then it was just like a do-over. Um, I serve every, every week at Helping Hand Home, one of the, uh, the foster care and treatment centers just kind of around the corner from here, and there's one kid in particular that I've been getting to know with these last couple of years, and, and he really hates to fail. And so whenever we're trying to do something new together, he'll always just say, he won't say do-over. His words, he says, that doesn't count, we're starting over. <laughs> doesn't count, we're starting over. And I just want to kind of put my arm around and be like, you can start over as many times as you want, man. And and that's really what we're going to see here. That's God's posture toward us as he gives us second chances. So let's look at the God of second chances this morning. Let me pray. God, we ask that you would uh, speak to each of us. Uh, Your spirit is alive and and all who've professed faith and your sphere moving among us. And so we invite you to speak your particular word. There's multiple things that we could get out of this passage. So open each person's heart, uh, speak to them uh, personally. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's cold, so I'm drinking hot water. So Jonah gets a second chance. We'll start in the very first verse in uh, verse 1 in chapter 3. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to it the message that I give you. This time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went out to Nineveh. So here you have it again. Chapter 1, it's pretty much the same calling. He's got this one calling where first he says, No, I'm going to get out of here and flee and go the complete other direction. Now he gets a second chance, and it just says that he obeyed. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I love that this shows that God hasn't given up on Jonah. Like Jonah's rebellion didn't disqualify him. He still has something for Jonah to do. He still has purposes for him, even though his heart isn't quite right throughout uh, the book that we read. God gives Jonah a second chance. And the big difference is this time he actually obeys. And now we're going to get to see what God does with his simple act of obedience. You go on then in uh, verse 3, it says, Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it, and Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, this was his message that God gave him, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Pretty popular message, I'm sure. That's what he did. Just to give a little context, because I think this actually creates like a neat picture that I hope 
at the very end of the sermon to point back to. So if you can kind of picture this with me, Nineveh was, like God said here, he, he calls it a great city. And then here it's described as a large city. This was a, a large and great city. In fact, the archaeologists and historians now have gone back to see that the whole center of the city, the center part of it, was about eight miles around, and they had a 50-foot wide and 100-foot tall wall. If you know things about the kind of culture back then, you had to build walls. That was how you protected yourself. And so they've got this giant eight-mile circumference wall that's like the inner part of the city. I was thinking and did a little bit of uh, math online this week, and I thought, like, if, if you took the UT Tower and made it like the center of Nineveh, We'll come back to that later. So the UT Tower is the center. This wall would go almost to Lady Bird Lake on, on the south side. It would go to about Justin Lane, appropriately, um, on the north side. It would go to Springdale on the east side, and it would go to Mopac on the west side. Like, that's a pretty large and great city, right? And they had this huge wall that protected it and fortified it. But then outside of it, they had what you might call like Nineveh suburbs. <laughs> so beyond that, there was actually a wall that was more like 80 miles in circumference or 60 miles in circumference beyond that. It was a much smaller wall, but they had this outer part. So this was a great and enormous city. And as we learned um, a few weeks ago, it was also a very violent city. And the Ninevites were known for being particularly violent and taking over the land. So the city was built upon the, the blood and the torture of other people. This is the city that God called Jonah to go to to preach this message. Now, on one hand, this would seem like this might be a believable message. His message is pretty simple. 40 more days, and then it's going to be overthrown. You might think, well, yeah, they could, in some sense, maybe they would actually believe that because they know what a brutal people they were. But I think by and large, on large part, they would not believe this because here they are in this grand city with a wall over 60 miles circumference, inside even more protected. And then also, I forgot to mention, they had 150 watchtowers just scattered all about so they would know if anyone was coming against them. A very fortified city for them to believe that they could actually be overthrown, let alone overthrown within 40 days, is not a message that they would be prone to believe, right? Yet God used this simple message, eight words in English, five words in Hebrews, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh is getting uh, their second chance because what God had said first is kind of different. If you go in, the, in the chapter 3, he says, go to Nineveh and give them the message that I'm going to give you. And now we learned what that message was. But if you go back to see the original message he was supposed to give when he fled, we'll go back to Jonah 1, and here's what he said then. God said, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So really what God was saying is there's a city that's been doing awful things and I've put up with it, I've put up with it, I've put up with it, but my patience is nearing its end. And now he tells them, go tell them, you've got 40 more days of my patience. So God knew that this was a particularly brutal, violent people. He had put up with them and put up with them and now his patience was coming to an end, but he gives them now 40 more days. So the question is, what would Nineveh do with its second chance? Or perhaps you could argue Nineveh's first chance, having heard this message. We continue in Jonah. And by the way, I'm actually going to go through the story. I forgot to mention this pretty quickly. And then we're going to go back and actually just draw some conclusions from the actual story itself. So progressing now, Nineveh's second chance. Nineveh believed God. Amazing. It says, Nineveh believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah thrown his warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust, and then he gave a proclamation to all of Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let the people or animals, 
herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and have compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Amazing, right? It says that they believed God. It actually doesn't even say that they believed Jonah. Like, sure, they believed Jonah, but they believed that Jonah's words were directly from God, and they received it as if God was speaking through Jonah directly to them. Enough that they believed, and we know that they believed because their belief was, was accompanied by several different works. You see a work of re- fasting and repentance. You see a, a, a work of fasting and humility, rather. You see a work of, of repentance. And then you see this work of prayer where they're actually calling upon God for mercy. So they did actually believe. Let's look at each of those just for a second. Fasting. It's kind of what we're experiencing together, those of us who are participating in the fast. Like one of the things that you do in a fast is a chance for you just to, to humble yourself before God, to try to make yourself a, a, acutely aware of your, your need for Him and the other things that you tend to find your satisfaction or your comfort in. And so they declare this fast, like nationwide. They're taking seriously Jonah's word. They're believing that if they are about to die within 40 days, they've got nothing they can do except throw themselves before God. They're not even interested in eating. This whole sackcloth thing is kind of weird for us. They've got this sackcloth that they wore. It's just something that they would do kind of publicly to say that we're all in this together or putting on just some kind of bland clothes to say basically it's not even worth dressing up. There's nothing of significance right now. We don't do it as much in our culture, but it might be like a little bit similar to at a wedding, I mean a funeral rather, <laughs> where, where you might wear black. You know, traditionally people have worn black at funerals just to, to kind of be in solidarity with each other that we're all in a time of grieving. And if any of you have ever lost a loved one, you know that like when that happens, like when you first find out, like the world just stands still. Like when you think about other people that are working or laughing or watching TV or eating, or you're just like, what are y'all doing? My friend just died. My family member just died. And there's a a sobriety that you say, nothing else matters right now. And that's the kind of fasting that they were doing. They were saying, nothing else matters. We've got to respond to this word of God from Jonah. In our 21-day fast, we're aiming to do some of the similar things and and letting God stir in us an affection uh, for him above other things. I will say one thing here. This is kind of weird, but if, did you notice that all the animals had to fast? <laughs> so I don't have a very good explanation for that, <laughs> but I did look into it and said, what have scholars thought about this? Because this is particularly uh, pretty weird that they would actually not only make them fast, they made them wear sackcloth. So <laughs> you're thinking like poodles, like wearing outfits, walking around, or I don't know what it is. But, but again, I think that the best explanation that I heard is that they, they so literally thought that this 40 days was all that they had left, that it just didn't matter. Nothing mattered, like we've got to seek God. This also was a side note that said probably these animals were free to eat anyway if they were out and open. So you might be asking, like, am I having my uh, dog fast during my 21-day fast? Those of you who know, my 185-pound mastiff would eat me in the middle of the night if I didn't feed him. So <laughs> my dog is not participating in Midtown's fast, nor should your pets. This was a very weird uh, proclamation by a strange king, Okay. But they were serious, and that was their fasting. And then not only fasting, but then they moved to repentance. It says really clearly here that the word, he said that they were, the proclamation said to turn from their evil ways and violence. Turn from their evil ways and their violence. This is what's so unique about this kind of repentance. It wasn't just kind of a vague guilt or shame. Like they knew particularly what their issue was. Like they knew they were a violent, a brutal, and evil people. 
And that's what it means to repent. Repent just means like to turn. It just means you're going to turn. You recognize this is wrong. You're going to turn the other way. And one of the ways that we repent, the one, th- one of the things that has to accompany our repentance is you have to name it. You can't just vaguely say, I'm turning a different direction. You have to name what your sin is. And they call it out like violence in our evil ways. This is what we need to turn from. Third thing that accompanied their belief was that they prayed. This proclamation, of course, says that they're supposed to call upon God urgently. And who knows? Maybe he'll be gracious to us. Who knows? One of the things that I love about this, you don't necessarily know what they were praying for. It doesn't say, here's what I'm telling you to pray, but you get an idea from this, right? Like the proclamation was to pray that God might have mercy on us. See, one of the things I think that's really good and one of the things that we have to be careful of when we fast is sometimes what we can do is we can fast or we can print or we uh, repent or we can say the right words of confession, but our heart really isn't in it. You have to be really careful because one of the things that you can do is you can start to fast in a way that then you're trying to earn your way back to God for something. Or you can fast or you can pray in a way that's, that's trying to manipulate God to be in your favor. One of the things that I think shows from this passage by the fact that they would say, who knows? They don't know what's going to happen. They're completely falling on God's grace and saying, who knows, maybe God will be gracious with us and, and answer our prayers and not bring about this destruction that Jonah's told us is coming. Now, we don't know particularly if Jonah actually shared more words than the eight. It's kind of speculation. Maybe he just wandered through the cities during those three days and was saying to himself just those, those five Hebrew words, those eight English words. It's possible, too, though, that he told them about God's patience, and so there was something that they were actually relying upon, hoping that might be true. You'll see in chapter 4 that, that Jonah actually did believe that God was compassionate and generous and gracious and merciful, but we don't know if he told them or not, but either way, that's what they're doing. They're throwing themselves on the mercy of God. So Jonah's had a second chance, and Nineveh's had a second chance. You might call it a first chance. Now the only question is, well, how will God respond? And that you find in the very last verse of this chapter. When God saw that they had turned from their evil ways... He relented and not bring about the destruction that he had threatened. God saw what they did, and he gave them a second chance. He gave them a chance to turn. These 40 days were not going to be the end of Nineveh because of the way that they acted. It was amazing. Like as evil as this nation was, all that they had done to literally build this great city that they were so proud of, that they had fortified, the violence and everything beyond it, God was going to give them more time more time to repent. As I said before, uh, I wanted to kind of share the whole story, and I want to really draw out what I think are the two primarily thing, primary things that we can learn from the story, and they really relate to what we can learn about man and what we can learn about God. I think the two biggest things that we can learn throughout this whole book of Jonah. Let's start first with God. The first thing is that God is patient and that God gives us second chances. Amazingly, amazingly patient is God. He continues to pursue us while we call this, this whole sermon series, the God who pursues, that God is so patient with us that he would even be patient with Jonah and his rebellion, that he'd be patient with Nineveh and this brutal people. We know this is what God is like because of the way that he acted toward Jonah first in this story. When I think about Jonah's story and the second chance he gets, I can't help but think about Peter. Uh, you guys who've been around church, you know a little bit more about, about Peter's life, but Peter was one of Jesus' followers. He was actually the first follower that actually named Jesus as Messiah. Remember, Jesus had all the, the disciples around, and he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter was the first one to say, you're Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And upon which Jesus says, you're right. This has been revealed to you by God. And you know what, Peter? Upon you, I'm going to build my church. 
Like he looks at Peter and he gives him a new name. You know, his name used to be Simon, but now he's called the rock and he's saying, I'm going to build my church upon this rock and your confession, you're so right, Peter. Peter's built up, he has his calling and he knows that Jesus has given him a new identity and a new calling, a new mission. But then we know later uh, that Jesus is talking again with the disciples and telling them how he must die and Peter says, no, you're not going to die that way. Jesus says, you know, get behind me, Satan. In fact, this time you're actually going to deny me three times before the night's over. And there in the courtyard, just as Jesus is about to be tried, we see that Peter actually does deny Jesus three times. He's like Jonah. He hopped a ship and ran a complete other direction. And then at the end of the book of John, we find that that Peter has actually just gone back to fishing. Yet there on the beach, Jesus in his resurrected body comes back to Peter, and you know the story. Three times he tells him, he says, hey, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He's giving him the second call, a second chance. He's telling him, you're not disqualified, Peter. I'm giving you the second call. The thing that I said was true about your name, it's still who you are and I still intend to use you. I love that about God's patience with us. That no matter what we've done, no matter how we've strayed, that God still gives us second, third, fourth, fifth (laughs) chances. And what he's called us to do and who he's made us, it's not changing God is so patient, patient beyond what we know, and he's still waiting. So just ask of you, like, do you feel like you're disqualified? Do you feel like maybe you've passed up your last chance and your last chance is gone? I just want to say, like, you can start over, like you can have a do-over. <laughs> this is the God who's so patient with us that he gives us second chances. We learn that about God in this passage. When I think back to Peter's life, I can see why near the end of his life he would write this book called 2 Peter, and this is why we would describe God in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This, of course, was written in the context of some believers who took Jesus' promise, where Jesus promised that he was going to come back, but they were starting to doubt, like, why, why hasn't Jesus come back? He said he was going to come back for us. And Peter's saying, you don't get God's patience. In a word, the reason why he hasn't come back is patience. And that patience is on display so that everyone would have a chance to repent. Like God's not willing that anyone would perish, but everyone, like the Ninevites, would have this chance to respond. He's waiting for his final judgment because he's patient. God is way, way more patient than we ever know. Sometimes I think that we make God too human. When we make God too human, we don't get the depth of the ways that he's been patient with us and the sins and the ways that we have turned from him mounting up against us. We make God too human, but when we see God for who he is, we see a God who sees all of the black places in our heart, yet extends immense patience beyond what we would even know. I think of the Ninevites especially, like Jonah's one thing, this guy was a prophet, he had done some good things, but these Ninevites have done nothing to their credit. Nothing that would have God ever want to give them patience. Yet God is patient with them, and he sends someone to them to say, look, I've got a message for you. There's still hope for you. Why would God do that? Unless he's just incredibly patient beyond what we would ever understand. You're going to see in the next chapter that Jonah actually wanted judgment on Nineveh. He did this message as faithfully as he could, but later when they did repent, he gets upset about it because everyone, including Jonah, wanted Nineveh to die. Everyone knew how awful they were. Everyone wanted judgment on Nineveh. Everyone. 
accept God because God is that patient. When I think of the Ninevites, I, I, I reflect back and think about Paul. Because Paul, of course, who used to be Saul, was a very, very violent man, a persecutor of the church himself, doing many of the things that the Ninevites would have been doing in their day. But God was not willing that Paul would perish. He wanted to give Paul a chance for repentance. And so he comes to him and he strikes him on one of these trips where he's going to go persecute the church. And he, he strikes him in a way that blinds him and he speaks to him. And he says, you're going to be Paul and you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. How patient is God that he would get this guy who's been persecuting people, of all people that deserve judgment, it would be Paul. God's more patient than we could ever know. I think that's why when Paul was writing to one of his followers, Timothy, one of his disciples, he, near the end of his life, reflected on the patience of God and describes the patience of God this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who's given me strength and considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. You get it there. He's given him a calling. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was a Ninevite. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, but the grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe and receive eternal life. And he busts into praise now. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew he was an Ninevite. He knew he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. Yet when he looks back to what God had done, all he can do is glorify God for his patience. This immense patience that was given to him, and he says, even for the purpose that others might receive and believe and have eternal life. God's patience toward me is an example to all. And so that's what I would say. We can look back at Jonah and say, God's patience to Nineveh is for that very reason. It's meant to be an example to us that God is patience and he's giving us the offer of eternal life as well, just as he did with Paul. So I'll ask you, um, particularly those of you here, I know that in, a, in our crowd, and we've got a lot of people, which I love at Midtown, who are really just investigating their faith, not sure of what they believe. I want you to know that God's been patient with you, that God's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting you to perish, but he's, he's waiting and extending his days so that you might say, yes, I repent, I believe, I name you, Jesus, as my Lord, my Savior. Like, that's how patient God is waiting for you. And I'd urge you just to take that step of faith and name him your Lord. And maybe there's some of you who identify a lot with, with Jonah. That you've been running from God, running and running, that God is chasing after you. And I want you to know that God is patient. He's like the, the, the father in the prodigal son story. He's sitting on the porch. He's waiting for you to come home. Like Jonah, like Nineveh, all you have to do is turn and seek God. That's how patience, that's how, how generous his offer is extended to you that you might believe. What Paul considered the immense, what he called there the immense patience of God, all he could do in response was worship God. He starts that passage, I thank Christ our Lord who's given me strength and considered me worthy of his calling. He ends with a praise. 
to the King, eternal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. We're going to have some time here at the end, of course, like we normally do to worship. And when we worship, I want us to, to worship God, thank Him for His patience on us, thank Him for His patience on the rest of the world that He's waiting, that all might have a chance to come to belief in Him. God is patient. Second thing we learn is more about what we learn from man. And what I learned from this is that God can use broken people with simple messages in amazing ways if they just obey his voice. Jonah's a very broken man. You're going to see a lot more of that in chapter 4, so I'm not going to do a spoiler alert, but, but Jonah's fresh off his repentance. I'm sure his heart was right, but you're going to see in the very next chapter his heart is all messed up. But this is a very broken guy, right? Fresh off repentance. He's about to do something else that he needs to repent from next. A very broken man. Yet God used him just because he stepped out in obedience and was willing to do what God asked him to do. His message is pretty simple, right? Not a very popular message. I don't know if I wander through, the, through there and just say 40 more days and the city's going to be overthrown. Yet just being faithful to do the exact words that God told him to do in his broken state, God did something miraculous. And what I learned from Jonah is two things, that one, no one is beyond God's use, and two, no one's beyond God's reach. Start with no one's beyond God's use. Jonah simply obeyed. Uh, he, he, like I said, he was just off rebellion. You're going to see next, next chapter that he's not in a very good spot. But all he had to do was simply obey. And I want, to, I want to encourage you to let you know that when God tells you to do something, he's in charge of the fruit of it. And when you step out and you just simply obey and do what he tells you to do, he can use broken people like you and me. He can. And that's what we see is amazing that God, no one is beyond God's use. I learned actually a very helpful definition when I was a young Christian about what it means to be a witness. You might argue that Jonah was being a witness. And so what did Jonah do? And this is a witness that I, definition that I learned, that, that successful witnessing is taking the initiative to share Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Taking the initiative, meaning obey. That's that obedience step. Like, God told me to do this. I'm actually going to do it and see what happens. I'm taking the initiative. I'm going to focus on Christ. Christ is going to be the message, not other things. By the power of the Spirit, I'm not doing this out of my own strength. I'm not doing this out of my own pride or anything other than in His strength. And then I just leave the results to God, like God's in charge of the results. And I want to say, what you can learn from this story is God can use a broken person who simply steps out in obedience and does what God tells him to do, and, and He can use it. So if you look at yourself and you think, like, I'm not qualified, I'm inadequate, God can't use me, if there's something that God's put on your heart to do with a friend or a neighbor or even here at Midtown Church and serving, God can use that. Little steps of obedience is what God uses because he's in charge of the results. What he wants from us is just our faithfulness. And he's going to work out all that other stuff. You'll see in the next chapter, God's going to work some stuff out of Jonah. He's going to keep working to purify us and, and make us less broken. But no matter what state we're in, this is the amazing thing that God can use us when we obey what he tells us to do. I know personally, I'll be a little honest here, um, one of the things that I'm doing during my fast, I'm kind of pressing into two particular issues uh, in my life, and one, one that I'm really pursuing is that honestly I've felt kind of inadequate sometimes, and I've been kind of wrestling with that, so I, I sent a bunch of letters to my pastor friends and just asked, like, what are some books or recommendations that you would help, you know, a fellow pastor that's really feeling, like, inadequate, I, sometimes I feel like I'm not a good teacher, I'm not a good discipler. I'm not a good counselor, I'm not smart enough, not wise enough, and I, I wrestle with those things. And I'm sure that you can relate <laughs> in, in your work or calling and ministry, everything as well. 
And so I've said, like, during this period, I want to, like, seek God in this and learn how to just know that God's in charge of the results and, and discover what he's called me to do and just try to be faithful and obedient to it and not fear anything else, not fear man or fear the results because God's in charge of that. And so this week has been really good for me reading it, just to think again, like, hey, I'm like a little Jonah. God can use Jonah, then he can use me. I'm, I'm glad to do that. I'm, I'm actually reading one of the books that I started reading. It's called The Imperfect Pastor. So I'm like, great, I can, I can learn a lot from this. I can relate. And so what I've been really wrestling with is things like this. Like, I need the reminder uh, that God can use anyone, even me. I need the reminder that I don't need to be perfect or pretend to do so. I need the reminder that I don't need to compare myself with others. I need the reminder that God really wants, what he really wants is my obedience and faithfulness, uh, not, not uh, fruit. And I need to remember that the results are in God's hands and not mine. And I need to remember that my identity is being a child of God and not in the results of any ministry. Like those are things that, that we can wrestle with, with God and we can bring to God like I'm trying to do during this fast because the truth is that God can use all of us, that we're all made differently, we all have different stumbling blocks, and, but God has given us a calling and if he's given us a calling to do something, if we simply just try in our best efforts to be faithful and obedient to it, God can use it in tremendous ways like he did with Jonah. There's a second thing that we learned from this. Not only can God use, is no one beyond God's use, no one is beyond God's reach. Think about this, really. Like if God can change a wicked city, a completely wicked city and civilization, he can change the heart of anyone. No one is beyond God's reach. We have to know that. I've been encouraged. My wife, Brenda, sent me a few emails in the the recent months about things that God's doing around the world and would you be surprised to know that two of the places where the church is growing the strongest in all the world right now is in China and in Iran? China and Iran, communism and Sharia law cannot stop what God wants to do. No one is beyond God's reach, and God will chase after, and he'll find a way, and he'll send people, and he'll mobilize movements like the underground church in those two countries that's doing amazing things, far beyond what we can even know. Like, that's the extent that God goes to reach people because no one is beyond God's reach. There's so much that we don't understand, so many things that God's doing behind the scenes that we don't even get out there in the world, but even particularly in our lives when we think about stepping out in faith and we think, well, well, God can't use me to reach these people. These people are too far. You do not know what God's doing behind the scenes in their hearts. And so when he's called you to step out and do something, you trust that he's already moving and done something in them. What if I told you this? This is pretty wild. That in 1765 BC and 1759 BC, there were two major plagues that hit Nineveh. Major plagues that actually caused them to, I'm sure, scramble and wonder is there a God? Like, what is he up to? What is happening here? And even more so, what if I told you that on June 16th, 763 BC, there was a solar eclipse in Nineveh? Okay, these people who probably worship stars and didn't have any sense of who God was to experience a complete blackout. Like, what is God doing? And then within a few years of that period, Jonah shows up with this message. Do you think that maybe those things were stirring? Things that Jonah didn't even know? Things that are happening behind the scenes that God's doing, showing that he can reach anyone and no one's beyond God's reach? And Jonah, if you just go and step out and do what I've told you to do, you don't know what I've been doing already. Like, obey me. As my friend uh, Steve Hawthorne at my previous church said, I always, I always like to quote this to myself, you're late to the party, man. 
It's like assume that you are late to the party, that if God's called you to step out and do something, you're late. Like you're, you're already late. God's already been working. That, otherwise, he wouldn't have called you to do what he's called you to do. Assume that God's already working behind the scenes because no one is beyond God's reach. He's patient. He's already chasing down people in your life like he did with Jonah and with Nineveh. I remember, uh, I did, if you don't know, I did like 20 years of campus ministry before uh, coming on staff at Midtown. And one of the things that used to just drive me crazy was, was well-meaning Christian parents who would say, oh, I don't want to send my kids to UT because that's like Nineveh. Like, <laughs> I, don't want it that, I don't want them to, they need to go to like the A&M or like a Christian college or something like that. And I just wanted, I wanted to go like, how big is your God? Like, what's your problem? Like, you know, and you guys are all UT, so I can do this. But I really was like, what kind of child did you raise? Like, raise a kid to walk with the Lord and let him send him as a missionary to UT. Like, that was the posture that, I'm not joking, like so many people had. Like, why would we go there? And I'm like, yeah, you would go because your son, your daughter is going to go live like a missionary and make a difference and radically transform the UT campus. That's what you're sending your kid to do. And I love that there was a church called Hill Country Bible Church that in 2005, they said, we're going to actually plant a church called Hill Country UT. It's a church that Midtown merged with, if you know that part of our history. There was a church, Hill Country UT, that we're going to go plant a church in the Nineveh of Austin, a suburban church that planted. Some of you guys here were, were founding members of that, of that church because they believed that no one was beyond God's reach. And I love that in 2011, one of the neat things about the, the body of Christ at, at, at Austin is that they work together in tremendous ways. It's just uh, so many things that they're doing. But back in 2011, all the churches worked together and commissioned an organization to do a huge study of all of Austin, like a spiritual survey of the whole city. And one of the things that they found was that central Austin was a least, least church to least reach part of Austin, that only 4% of people in central Austin go to church, that 76% of people in central Austin don't name Jesus as their savior. And so when those studies and those statistics came out and that was presented to us, there was a church called Hill Country Pflugerville that said, you know what? We need to plant a church in central Austin. And so Jake and others that are here were part of that church in Pflugerville. And they said, you know what? We're actually gonna sell our homes or lease our homes or we're all gonna move into, if you wanna take it, this 100 foot high, 50 foot wide city, sprawl eight mile circumference, Nineveh in central Austin, and we're going to plant a church there because we believe that God can use anyone, and we believe that no one is beyond God's reach. Amazing. It's been six and a half years, and, and we'll say that, that it, God's been faithful to use us, even though it's been difficult at many times, but we've seen and we rejoice that many have, like First Peter said, come to repentance, that God's patience has lasted for many of the people that we've been able to touch during these six and a half years as a church. We stepped out in faith, and we're going to continue to step out in faith and believe that, that God can use anyone and that no one's beyond God's reach. God wants to use us, and our friends aren't beyond his reach. In application, let me just give you a few things to think about as we move toward worship. Real simply, three things. Worship our patient God who gives us second chances. Like, this God is worthy of our worship. And so when we sing here, let's, let's robustly sing about the patience of God and declare how patient and gracious he's been with us. Don't just do it on a Sunday morning. Do it throughout the week. Find worship songs. Express your praise and your thanks to God for his patience in your prayers. Second, respond to his second chance. Like I said earlier, if there's a sense that you feel like God's speaking to you and he's given you a second chance right now, 
respond to it. Do what Jonah did and take a step of obedience. Do what Nineveh did and believe God. And finally, third, let's tell our friends about this patient God who gives second chances. Like this patient God is worth talking about. Like he's worth telling our friends and, and believing that God's already at work in their lives and we're late to the party. Let's tell our friends that God is a God who gives second chances, third chances, fourth chances, that God is patient with them, wanting them to come into his fellowship and his family alongside of us. We're going to close by taking communion. I thought today was we reflect and worship the thing that stuck out to me when thinking about God's patience is remember Peter's writing to people that were thinking in the first century like why hasn't Jesus come back and here we are like 2,000 years later doing the same meal that Jesus told his disciples to do like 2,000 years we've been part of a, a global capital C church taking this communion we're remembering that God is still waiting and he's waiting because he's not willing that any would perish, but all would have eternal life. And so as you take it, thank him for his patience on you and how he led you. He, wary, he, he tarried and waited long enough for you to respond in faith. Let's also take it in confidence that God's still patient and there's many more all around the world who are yet to put their faith in him. And we can rejoice that he's that patient with us and with them and with the rest of the world. Communion is at the front and at the back. Anyone who's put their faith in Christ and believes what they're taking is true for them. Uh, you're welcome. Anytime during this last set of songs, take it at your own pace. Uh, let's worship our patient God. Father, we thank you that you are so patient. That you would take a, a guy like Jonah and still use him, give him a second calling. And, and that you would do something crazy like you did with this very violent city. Amazing. Pray that we would just rejoice in your patience today and let it be a cause for worship, that, that we worship and follow you not out of duty, but out of rejoicing and how great and loving and patient you've been with us. Speak to us as we worship now, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.